Join us to hear about current research, programs, and clinical practice improving the health of pregnant women, children, and adolescents in low and middle income countries around the world. This is the Talking Global and Maternal Child Health Podcast Series. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this first episode of Talking Global and Maternal Child Health Podcast Series. I'm your host, Kurt Lewis. This first episode will focus on COVID-19 and the health of children. Very relevant topic at the moment, given all the media attention around vaccines and the pandemic. The following is a recording of a webinar that has been edited into a podcast. The title of the webinar is, What Lessons Have We Learned From COVID-19 That Can Ensure We Better Protect The Health and Well-Being of Children in Future Pandemics? This webinar was organised by Dr. Sarah Bernays and Dr. Phoebe Williams from the University of Sydney Global Maternal and Child Health Network. They have assembled a panel of experts on this topic, so please enjoy. Hi everyone, so welcome to the Sydney Global Maternal and Child Health Network webinar, which is part of the University of Sydney's Wide Network Event Week. My name is Sarah Benes and I'm a senior lecturer here at the School of Public Health and an associate professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I'm a social scientist who focuses on designing effective community-based interventions to support responses to infectious disease prevention and engagement. And my main area of research is adolescent health in HIV in Eastern and Southern Africa, but I've also been working on COVID-19 here in Australia, in Vietnam, as well as in Eastern and Southern Africa. No doubt will be a fascinating webinar in which we're going to be looking at what lessons have we learned from COVID-19 that can ensure that we better protect the health and well-being of children in future pandemics. And there are lots of events happening here in Australia, not least with the plans for vaccinating 5 to 11-year-olds, which will no doubt come up in some form today. But we intend for this webinar to take a global perspective as well as what's happening here in Australia and to think about the needs of children around the world. So I'm now going to hand over to my co-chair, Dr. Phoebe Williams. Thanks, Sarah. So yes, I work with Sarah in the School of Public Health and the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Sydney. I'm a, a paediatrician and an infectious diseases physician with a lot of research that's focused in low resource settings. Now, as you could probably tell, we tried in our title to make this as non-COVID as possible. I think we are all well and truly sick of lectures and webinars focused on COVID. But I think what's becoming a really consistent theme in the literature and among both parents and clinicians and researchers is that for two years now, children have really suffered due to the COVID pandemic, despite them really suffering from minimal direct impacts of the illness itself. And it's really interesting to look back on why that is. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that most of our pandemic preparedness plans globally as well as regionally and within countries, are focused on viral vectors that we anticipate will have a big impact on children and where children will be big transmitters of disease. So most pandemic prepared plans are focused on things like influenza. And then COVID really caught us all off guard. And it wasn't the pandemic we were all preparing for. We probably still have a, an influenza pandemic that's around the corner. But coronaviruses really don't infect or affect children from a direct illness point of view very much. 
And so despite all that, though, it's really interesting to think about the indirect impact that this pandemic has had on children and young people and their mothers and their families globally. And while we look down the barrel of new variants emerging and really what is going to be a really long haul with this pandemic and for ensuring children are put first for future pandemics, we wanted to sort of take a step back today. And I think particularly in Australia, where many of us cross our T's and dot our I's to get our five to 11 year program organised, it's worth thinking about many children like this family. This is a gorgeous ex-premature baby that I was visiting one weekend in a clinic in rural Kenya. And it's worth considering that children like that and families like that are really the ones that have, have suffered the most from the indirect impacts of this pandemic. So despite being at minimal risk of acute illness, children's lives have really been completely disrupted by many of the mitigation measures that we've used to control COVID-19. And often some of those measures might have done more harm than good. And we think it's a good time now, two years into the pandemic, to really pause and make sure that any mitigation measure that is put in place now starts to place children first. And what we've seen over the course of the pandemic is that the harmful effects of this pandemic have been really unequally distributed and like with so many infectious diseases, the poorest countries in the world have been most significantly affected. And even in resource-rich nations, the most vulnerable children in those countries have been most significantly affected and disadvantaged. So when we zoom out quickly and sort of consider this in, in many contexts, and again, as I said, while we worry about our own 5 to 11 year COVID program, it's worth considering that it's been estimated that 23 million children have missed out on their basic childhood vaccines over the last couple of years due to the impact on routine health services that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused. So while we worry about which vaccine our adolescents should get or whether or not we should vaccinate our children that have access to these excellent health resources here in Australia, it's worth considering that there are now millions of children vulnerable to diseases such as measles and pneumococcal infections just because health systems have not been able to provide the routine health care that children need. And then obviously school closures have been one of the biggest impacts on children worldwide. It's been estimated that 1.8 trillion hours of in-person learning have been lost for children across the last two years. And once again, the poorest children and the most vulnerable children have been most affected. So it's estimated that 463 million children had no access to remote learning when schools shut last year. And for many countries, those closures extended for three quarters of the year. And when you look a little bit closer at who those kids are that couldn't access remote learning, that the vast majority of those children that had no access to remote learning resources at home were in resource constrained areas of the world, like Eastern Southern Africa and Southeast Asia. And there's a particular prevalence of children in rural and poor households in all resource settings having less access to remote learning resources. So that's just going to exacerbate already existing inequalities that are going to take many generations to repair at this rate. And we know that when schools close, children are forced into very vulnerable situations and to more risky behaviours. So child marriage is, is a good example of one of them. And it's been estimated that we're going to have an, an additional 10 million child brides eventuate from the school closures and the, the pandemic impact of COVID-19. And we also know that school is a really important place, not just for safety for children, but also for many children to get their nutritional needs. So in many, many global settings, lunch programs are a really important part of a school program. And that varies from parts of England, where all 
kindergarten children are given a free lunch to most of sub-Saharan Africa where lunch is a very important and incorporated part of the school day. And for most of those children and those families, that might be the only meal that they get for the day. And so we know that the COVID pandemic has had a big impact on malnutrition globally, both because of the increase in food insecurity and many children and their families simply not having access to being able to purchase food or to sell their usual things that they would sell at markets to be able to buy food with their own funds. And so that's had an impact on increasing the rates of acute malnutrition, which we know is one of the number one risk factors for death in children, because once a child is malnourished, they have a very high chance of of being overwhelmed by an infection. And we know that that acute malnutrition is often a high risk of rolling into long-term malnutrition problems. So that might be micronutrient deficiencies like vitamin A, or it might be that we see a global increase in stunting. And I just wanted to finish with this story of just trying to bring some of those statistics about millions and millions of kids down to a small handful of kids. And again, for those listening on the podcast, I'm sorry you can't see my photos, but I have two photos here that are juxtaposed. And one is of 15 very happy and healthy looking kids that are in a school program in a very poor rural community of Kenya called Malindi on the coast of equatorial Kenya. And those kids were selected by community leaders as being very, very vulnerable kids who had parents that couldn't afford to send them to school. And through a development organisation, they were given funds to attend school. And so in this photo, they're in their school uniforms and they're all holding their lunch bowls with big smiles on their face, looking really quite well nourished and healthy. These kids were also given shoes because obviously soil transmitted infections are also a big problem there and some access to basic medical care. And so those kids were doing really, really well through that school program. And then in early 2020, when schools shut, those kids needed to stay at home initially, but then gradually the children in those programs really disappeared from the radar of that organisation. And it quickly became apparent that many of them had engaged in many of the risky behaviours that that you read about in these sort of UNICEF and, and WHO reports. And many were found begging on the streets. Some had been sent to urban areas to engage in sex work for earning some money for their family. And it took about six months to one by one bring each of those children back to that rural community in Malindi. And really all that those families needed was some money to be able to cook their own lunch at home. And as you can see in the lower photo, once those food supplies were provided, those kids were able to be home and safe. And I think that really, for me, tells the story of what the pandemic has done, because it's not just something as simple as as your school closing, but it's about the ongoing flow and effects that these big policy decisions have on, on children globally. That is what we want to talk about today. So we're really excited to have a fantastic panel today that are dialing in from all over the world. And first up, we have Dr. Archana Koirala. Many of you will have come across her brilliant publications that she has managed to complete over the last couple of years, doing a whole host of really exceptional work, tracing how COVID has behaved in schools here in Australia. And at this point, I will hand over to her. Archana is a staff specialist at the National Centre for Immunisation Research Services and is being asked to present in a webinar almost every day at the moment. So we really appreciate your time, Arch, and I will hand over to you. Thank you so much, Phoebe, and welcome everyone. And it's a real pleasure to speak at this forum. I myself, an Australian, of course, but I come from Nepal and I've lived all over Southeast Asia and I moved to Australia mainly because my parents were finding it hard to maintain schooling for me and my siblings within Southeast Asia due to the disruptions that it was occurring in the 1990s there. So we 
as well as many, many of you and many others have immigrated to Australia looking for a better life. We need to understand the transmission so that we can develop sound policies in terms of educating our young children and its effect on schooling. So really the title of my talk is Understanding COVID and its Effect on Schooling, Some of the Transmission Work from New South Wales. Well, before I start, this is one of my favorite books. It's, it's called Here We Are by Oliver Jeffers, Notes for Living on Planet Earth. And to those in the podcast, the title of the book has a picture of the world with some rocket ships turning around. And the other pictures on my slide is a picture of Oliver Jeffers holding his little baby in front of a, a line of people that look very different to each other. And the note saying, you're never alone on planet Earth. It really talks about the planet Earth as a unit, humanity and the environment. And as we come towards the end of 2021, I think it's a time to reflect about all of us adults and all of us children and really to think about how we can ensure that they develop, grow, have enough to eat and be educated. As Phoebe alluded to, COVID-19 has really cost children in a huge way. So 1.8 trillion children have lost in-class hours. And as Phoebe has mentioned, there's an ongoing effect to this lack of education that expands far beyond just, just learning, but in, in terms of nutrition, family, and feeling safe. So really the biggest impact of COVID-19 in children has been the impact to education. And 168 million children globally have experienced school closures for almost a full year. And the OECD report shows that a loss of education has a 3% impact at a minimum to the country's GDP. So I just want to take you on a story. This is going back to 2020 in New South Wales or, or you know, across Australia. We heard about this virus, Corona, some people called it. There were incursions into Australia from foreign travellers. And around the time of March, sitting at my desk, and there were ongoing news reports about parents concerned for their children attending school. And we also heard about certain schools that had cases of COVID-19. And, you know, this is a report at a high school not far from me that had an incursion. And schools and teachers themselves were up in uproar saying, we need to be safe. We need to feel safe at school. And there was a big push really from the public in terms of we need to close school. It'll curb the pandemic and it will keep our children safe. But really, as Phoebe alluded to, we needed to think about the data we didn't have a data on coronavirus pandemic in Australia. The past coronaviruses that caused concerns were very different to SARS-CoV-2 and weren't imported into Australia. And so that day, I was tapped on the shoulder by one of my public health colleagues to discuss thinking about actually gathering data in terms of what is the true transmission of SARS-CoV-2 in an educational setting? And to be able to provide that data to make policy decisions around school closures. So from there, the New South Wales COVID-19 transmission study began. It's a collaborative study between NCS, where I work, New South Wales Health and New South Wales Education. And what we do is we use all statewide COVID-19 notification data and we look at anyone who attended an educational setting from childcare to preschool up to high school and the contacts of the people surrounding those people that may have been exposed and thinking about how many of those got infected and also about bringing them home and, and the family members that they could possibly infect. 
Penzo, we looked at, is there a difference between being an adult or being a child in terms of transmission? Or what setting that you attend, for example, a childcare versus a school? And thinking about transmission, how high transmission is around your area and does that impact transmission in school? And we've continued to do this work through the Delta variant and most recently in the last weekend, actually, with the new Omicron variant as well. So what did we find in 2020? We had low to moderate wave in the initial part of 2020, and then some constant incursions or a constant community transmission towards the latter part of 2020. And overall in New South Wales, we had approximately 5,000 COVID-19 cases. With that 5,000 and COVID-19 cases, and out of 1.8 million children, we had only 74 settings where a case attended whilst infectious. And when we looked at all the contacts, so 82.5% of those contacts were tested and secondary transmission only occurred in 18 of those 74 settings, so 24%. And when we looked at those contacts, what we found was that less than 1% of those contacts who were exposed became infected. Interestingly, what we also noted was that if you were an adult staff, you had a much more likelihood of transmitting the virus. So staff to staff, the attack rates was 4.4%, whilst if you were a child and a young child in particular, the likelihood of transmission was very low. And really, you need to compare this with the loss of education. In New South Wales, we have 8.1 million people, and of those 1.8 million are students. We fortunately only had closure of school for six weeks, but that in itself was 378 hours of lost learning by these students. And as you all are aware, our neighboring state of Victoria had a much larger outbreak in the second half of 2020, but they too, even within that large outbreak, found that most cases in school-aged children and preschool children occurred within the household setting rather than within the school setting. So really, where do kids get COVID? They get it in the house primarily, and it seemed that a small proportion of students do acquire COVID at school, but the likelihood of that was much, much lower. So fast track to 2021, June, as we all know, an incursion of Delta outbreak into primarily the states of New South Wales and Victoria occurred. And this graph is an epicurve of New South Wales. We have really to date around 80,000 COVID-19 notifications. And of those, 33% are between the ages of 0 to 19 years, as you can see denoted in red. This outbreak started at the tail end of Term 2 into the Term 2 holidays, all of Term 3, and, and is ongoing into Term 4. So what happened in New South Wales? We had stay-at-home orders of Greater Sydney implemented towards the, at the end of June. Then these stay-at-home orders expanded to all of New South Wales. By the beginning of October, we reached 70% double vaccination and our stay-at-home orders or lockdown ended. Schools resumed for kindergarten, E1, 12, mid-August with that 80% double vaccination within adults. And all students were back at face-to-face -face teaching from the end of October. And we launched an adolescent vaccination throughout Australia. And in New South Wales, we have greater than 80% that have received the first dose and greater than 77% have been double vaccinated. So this is the context in which I'd like to expand the school transmission data. So what we did was between the 16th of June and the 17th of September, so the 17th of September was the last day of term three, we looked at how many sites had a case attend with other contacts whilst infectious, so approximately 500. 
some sites had multiple incursions. And so it's interesting to one of the questions that get asked to me is that going back to the epi curve, you were in lockdown. How can there have been incursions to school? Well, schools were fully open for people who needed to attend. And a lot of schools had approximately 5 to 10% attendance across the years. And a lot of them were cohorted into a single class. So it, it pretty much mimicked what you would experience full face-to-face -face teaching within your classroom setting. So the incursions occurred primarily in early child care settings, so ECECs and primary schools. But there were incursions in some high schools, some K-12 schools, and SSP stands for Schools for Specific Purposes, so children who have disabilities and need additional care. And what did we find? We analysed 353 sites, which approximated to 15,000 close contacts, and of those, 96% had testing done. Again, we found that a subset of settings had transmission, but the majority of settings still had no transmission within the educational setting. Of those, we found, so of 15,000 contacts, we found that 673 contacts tested positive for COVID-19. Now, this is a very conservative estimate, you could say. So what we did was that we included anyone who was a contact. But what we have found subsequent, and we're analysing this data, is that a proportion even of these contacts who were at school and potentially exposed most likely acquired it in the home because there was quite a lot of community transmission outside the home and a lot of parents in particular, especially those who worked in essential work such as supermarkets, such as construction, were infected and infected their children as well. So what other circumstances were risk factors transmitted? What we found was that an unvaccinated adult had the highest risk of transmitting and acquiring infection. So there was a two to five-fold risk of transmitting compared to a child. And the risk actually increased the younger the child was. So in a preschool setting, we found that the attack rate, if the primary, primary case was an adult staff member, was approximately 17 times higher than if the primary case was a preschool child. We also found that transmission readily occurred in situations where mitigation measures may have been hard to implement, such as school for special purposes where mask use may have not been optimal. It's really hard to socially distance between students. And it's also really hard to you know, maintain open windows in case you know, some of these students may be at flight risk. And what have we found more recently in term four? Well, we analyzed the data from the 18th of October onwards. The reason we chose the 18th of October is because that's when kids started returning to school for face-to-face. -face. And again, you know, with over 95% attendance in New South Wales, we've had around 531 incursions into schools. We've had approximately a similar number of incursions into childcare settings as well. Primary schools, again, seem to be the highest risk of incursions. And one of the theories that I have for that is most likely, you know, they represent an unvaccinated group. Despite the, these number of incursions, the rate of infection within our community have remained steady. That the rate of infection within the zero to 19 year olds have also remained steady, but decreased since lockdown ended. So that potentially suggests that schools in itself, with the mitigation measures that have been implemented, 
don't seem to drive community transmission. And I think that's an important concept to understand globally, because we here in Australia have the ability to trace and intensively test a large cohort of students and staff. But that is not a possibility overseas in areas where reagents are not available, it's expensive, the rapidity of testing and the timeliness isn't available. It's really important to understand that data that we've uh, um, you know, put together shows that you can open schools as long as you have some sort of mitigation measures. Schools don't seem to be drivers of infection. Even more compelling is that in New South Wales, we've had hospitalization and ICU admissions have fallen despite steady number of notifications per day. What we're doing now is thinking about how we could use further testing to return children to school. And both Victoria and New South Wales are thinking about the implementation and have implemented in certain settings the use of rapid antigen testing to see if, if that will enable children to what we call test and stay. So you, you test in the morning and you return to school if your test is negative. What about Omicron? Now, you might be confused to thinking we were talking about transformers. But really, you know, Omicron is probably just another letter of the Greek alphabet. It will, it is obviously a variant of COVID and has, for the last week, had incursions into school, into New South Wales, as you probably have seen in the media, and we will follow the impact. But it's really important that we take a step back, follow the impact, and not hasten our decision or not be so reactive in terms of now there's a new variant, let's go back to 2020 and close everything. So my last few slides really discusses the impact of closures on schools in Australia. And this was an evaluation done in 2020 by the University of Newcastle. And it really showed that schools and school leaders reported that there was less growth in student achievement in some schools. There was a high level of concern for students working below the grade level prior to COVID, and especially in students from low socioeconomic backgrounds, those of Indigenous background and students with disability, and those with two-parent working families. What was found towards the end was that a lot of students did catch up, and the reason for that was because we had continuous face-to-face -face teaching, and that all the fun stuff of school was actually cancelled. So almost all extracurricular activities were curtailed, and so really all the students focused on some reading and maths, and so although they did catch up, it wasn't the same in terms of the pleasure and enjoyment that they had experienced previously. And there was also deep concern for continued student absenteeism and disengagement in some schools, especially in remote New South Wales. Everything has an impact. And even if you close a school for 24 to 48 hours, you'll end up having a large proportion of students with loss to face-to-face -face teaching. And if you calculate some numbers, looking at the last couple of weeks, how many schools have been affected, what we found was that you end up having one day per week lost per school child, just implementing school closures for 24 to 48 hours as they're trying to do contact tracing. And this is, of course, heterogeneous. And those with large household size sizes will be disproportionately affected. And again, this is from our Victorian colleagues survey that was done in lockdown four in June 2021. And what they found was that students were feeling pretty poor. So 22% were feeling awful, 29% were feeling pretty bad, 29% were complacent, and only 3% were quite happy and jubilant. You know, in the interest of time, I won't read all these comments, but really it shows that that 15-year-olds, 10-year-olds, weren't feeling great and a lot were feeling quite flat. 
They felt that they were missing a lot of opportunities because of lockdown. It made them feel stressed and sad. And this young person said, half the time, I feel great to have a little break from society as sometimes I can get emotionally drained. The other part, I feel horrible and stressed is I don't talk to anyone except my household and one friend. You know, in terms of the impact of school, some people preferred school lockdown to some degree. This 15-year-old female said that she could complete her uh, work in her own time without being in the classroom for the whole while. And this um, 17-year-old boy said that he could really finish all his school work on the cloud and instead of going to the school. But a lot of other students said that, you know, they lost the motivation to go to school or to study online and that their education was suffering. And some younger, younger students said that I wish I school stayed even when there is lockdown. I can wear a mask. And another person said, let us stay at school. Stop locking us down. And really, it was about, in summary, keep schools open, better online learning and vaccinate teachers. So how can we keep schools open? Really, it's about some of the mitigation measures that we put in place. And what we have in place across, I think, the globe is a combination of, of these measures. And they do work in combination. You don't need a lot of money and you don't need a lot of equipment. Things like even opening a window does have an effect and wearing a mask also does have an effect. Just But it suggests that once you put in a couple of mitigation measures in place, it does decrease the transmission and, and make schools safe. So in conclusion, that the biggest impact of COVID-19 in children has been the impact to education. And really, we need to back policy with scientific data that we need to collect in any form. And it really suggests that schools may not be large drivers of transmission, especially in settings where mitigation measures are in place, even with new variants. And really, again, back to Oliver Jeffers, things can move slowly here on Earth. More often, though, they move quickly. So use your time well. It will be gone before you know it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Archana. It's really quite incredible what you've managed to achieve in tracking how COVID has affected the education settings here in Australia. And that's such helpful data for us to have globally. I think some really key messages there that emerged. Interesting to note that the adult attack rate from an adult staff member is 17 times that from a child bringing COVID into a school. And really, I think what's most relevant to us now with a lot of people still having some uncertainty as schools have recently opened was your really recent data showing that the rates of infection haven't increased despite lockdown being lifted and with that population not yet vaccinated. So really interesting lessons that I think can therefore be applied globally because it is probably a long, long time before we will be able to vaccinate children worldwide. So next up, we have Professor Fiona Russell. Fiona, again, is someone who is being asked to give a webinar almost every day at the moment, and you might have seen her excellent articles in many news sources across Australia recently. She's a paediatrician and an epidemiologist and the Child and Adolescent Health PhD Program Lead at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in Melbourne. And she's also the Deputy Director of the Australian Regional Immunisation Alliance and has done a lot of work herself in the Pacific over her research career. So we're really lucky to have Fiona give up some of her time to be with us today as well. Thank you. Thank you, Phoebe, and thank you, Sarah, for the invitation to chat today and to present. And I'm really going to talk about, you know, why it's been so difficult to understand the COVID epidemiology in children and why it's caused so much division, really, I guess, in trying to understand it where people think, oh, every child's going to die to the other extreme of it's all very mild case. So 
So is the vaccine going to work and stopping all of this? Well, in primary school kids, so vaccines are highly efficacious against symptomatic infection, so 91%. In the UK, they started vaccinating 16 to 17-year-olds here with a single dose, and this is the incidence rate of cases so case incidence has gone down and vaccination in that age group with a single dose is about 60%. Now with the 12 to 15 year olds, the schools were opened up and things shot up. And then after schools opened, the 12 to 15 year olds were offered a single dose. And this is the case incidence. Um, all case numbers are sort of coming down now. And also even in the children who are not vaccinated as yet, although they've just started in the last couple of weeks, but you know, they've only done about 10% or probably less than that of the population at the moment. So again, vaccinating older age groups also helps protect children as well. Duration of protection is unknown for against infection in children and, and teenagers. So unlike the 16 and overs where it declines down to about 50% by six months, at least a four months anyway, it seems to persist. And so that's sort of positive. Hopefully, you know, the duration of protection against infection in this age group may be longer and, and for younger kids as well, though we don't know obviously yet. Archon has already gone through all this. So even though vaccine is there, we don't know what the vaccine effectiveness will be against Omicron. And we also need the test to stay strategy, whereby what is the best TTIQ to be able to enable minimising days of face-to-face -face learning loss. And so having that strategy that Archana talked about, the test to stay where, where there's rapid antigen testing for primary coast contacts is really critical to get that sort of sorted out because, you know, Omicron's not, certainly not going to be the last variant. We're stuck with this and we don't know how long. We don't know the vaccine effectiveness either in the duration and things like that. So we really need to have a good system in place for schools still. So really the epidemiology varies by vaccination, uptake, demographics, compliance to masks and all those other measures. And so really looking at the US and the UK at a national level, really need to look at other places as well to understand a lot better. There's very few data that anywhere that are publicly available from low and middle income countries. There is some data from South Africa. And what we need really, and certainly Victoria in particular, needs publicly available and timely reporting data. We don't have any school data that gets sort of reported and the rapid antigen testing isn't being reported. The results are not being reported to the Department of Health. So nobody's collating that at the moment. We've got a new report that's come out. We sort of try and collate all this data that I've presented today in a weekly report from government surveillance sites to be able to, particularly with Omicron, keep an eye on things and what's happening to children. And we also put together research briefs that we try and update regularly on Delta, COVID in kids, schools and vaccination in children as well. So thank you very much and I'll finish there. Thank you so much, Fiona, and thank you for all your incredible work. And in the interest of time, I'm going to move on to introducing our final speaker, who's an inspirational colleague of mine that I have the pleasure to work with. I'd like to introduce everybody to Pro Professor Rashida Farrand, who's a professor of international health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She's been based in Zimbabwe for about 17 years, was involved in the establishment of the first HIV treatment services as antiretroviral therapy was rolled out back in 2004. And now she's working as a Wellcome Trust Senior Fellow in Clinical Science and leads a large multidisciplinary and really quite fantastic research group conducting clinical and epidemiological studies on HIV infection in older children and adolescents. She is also the director of a very new Wellcome Trust funded doctoral program 
for health professionals in global health research, which is very exciting. And in addition to this, Rashida set up the COVID-19 unit in one of the largest teaching hospitals in Zimbabwe, in Harare. And when she started at the hospital last year, there was ongoing industrial action. There wasn't a blood pressure machine. There wasn't a pulse oximeter. And they had flooding because the pipes were broken. So Rashida has been through a lot with her team. And she's now leading a countrywide program in partnership with the Ministry of Health and Child Welfare that aims to improve confidence among healthcare workers in treating the disease. We have so much to learn from Rashida, who joins us from Karachi today. So thank you. Over to you. Thank you, Rashida. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the very, very kind and generous introduction. I'm essentially going to give a broad overview of the impact of the pandemic on basically the health and well-being of children with perspective from Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe, to just give you a, a little bit of context, is a country in southern Africa. It's a landlocked country, which has a population of about 15 million It's a country that has had a severe early onset sustained generalized HIV epidemic with adult HIV prevalence 13% in 2020. So still a very severe HIV epidemic, which has already had a very massive impact on the health system. But importantly, over the past 20 years, it has experienced severe economic decline with a recession over the past 20 years a hyperinflationary economy with this many million percent inflation in 2008 and still triple figure inflation in contemporary times and really 80% formal unemployment. In the face of this, there has been a gradual collapse of the health system with a shortage of healthcare workers, a brain drain out to high income countries, a shortage of vital medicines and a gradually dilapidated health infrastructure. And testimony to this is that we've had cholera and typhoid outbreaks, which were unheard of about 20 years ago, both occurring in 2018, but also previous cholera outbreak, a very severe one in 2008. So I'm going to move straight on to kind of talking about the lockdowns, because these were measures a lockdown was imposed globally in different shapes and forms in many countries across the globe. And this lockdown that occurred in Zimbabwe had some very large impacts on daily lives of human beings. And I think pictures illustrate things a lot better than words can. So on the top right, for those who are on an audio podcast, is a really long, long, long queue of people waiting for transport because all public transport was severely constrained with only a couple of buses running. So for the vast majority of people getting to work, getting to kind of places where they could access food was severely constrained. The other aspect was that there was real threat to access to food and water. So for people who kind of are daily wage earners, people who are going several kilometers to access food and water, this was not possible in the face of a complete lockdown. The other aspects, and I mean, I worked with Sarah on this in a trial that we're both working on in Zimbabwe that is providing community-based health services to young people. There was real vulnerability of healthcare workers who felt very, very marginalized and very threatened by the incoming pandemic. 
And potentially what was really important was that there was severe sidelining of other health conditions and programs. So whilst Phoebe alluded earlier that, you know, we've had a very strong focus on COVID, children particularly are at risk of many, many other diseases and other health conditions. And those were all sidelined in the face of global attention and particularly, you know, the media and the sort of very heavy northern focus attention on COVID-19 which essentially also led to many countries having to just really sideline everything else. So this is just to give you an understanding of what happened when the epidemic was arriving in Zimbabwe in mid-2020, and we were starting to see a rise in uh, numbers of adults uh, being admitted with COVID-19. So at the same time, we were in the midst of national industrial action, And we'd been having episodes of national industrial action in the preceding two years. And in the face of unavailability of personal protective equipment, work and healthcare workers feeling very threatened and unprotected, the strikes worsened, they downed tools, and basically the health services completely shut down. So on the right, you can see the pediatric inpatient ward, which is ward B3, which is chained up. And on the bottom right, you can see the outpatient clinic, which really does HIV clinics four days a week, completely shut down. And you can imagine the impact it can have or would have had on ability to access HIV care, tuberculosis care, and other care for even chronic diseases. I just want to touch on some of the barriers that people and children would have faced in accessing healthcare. And I particularly focus on children because they're very much reliant on adults for their healthcare. And this is a study that was done across many parts of the globe and looking at some of the reasons why people couldn't access healthcare. And some of the reasons allude to what was happening in health facilities, i.e. there was a healthcare worker shortage, there was clinical closures, long waiting times, a lack of PPE or face masks, but additionally, lockdowns and the reduced income as a result of lockdown, reduced money to travel, disruption in transport, and essentially fear amongst people of acquiring SARS-CoV-2 infection in health facilities deterred people from bringing their children for HIV care. But actually, we've seen this in our cohorts as well, with a lot of children and adolescents ringing us up and saying that they weren't able to go for their treatment because at roadblocks, they were asked to show the medical records which would disclose their status. So really important impacts of the epidemic on accessing healthcare. And again, to just give you context of the fact that in many low-income countries, the COVID-2 pandemic is just one amongst a series of insults to health systems. And what you can see is that over time, that the numbers of attendances had been dropping. That was when we had a cholera outbreak, and it was also the time when we had civil unrest, and that was time when the numbers of admissions dropped. But what you can also see is that as the COVID pandemic came into Zimbabwe in 2020, that the numbers of primary care attendances have dropped significantly. That again is just a real demonstration of the lack of access to healthcare. And I don't just mean a healthcare for 
acute disease, but primary health care and primary health care clinics are where immunizations are provided. It's where growth monitoring is done, where children are monitored, essentially. And uh, so didn't just affect acute care, but also kind of the preventive interventions that are so important for maintaining health of children. So growth monitoring, immunizations, all of those were severely impeded by the shutdown in primary health care services, as well as secondary health care services. So again, to put into context that it isn't just about the virus, which is, has been the large focus on the biomedical interventions, but the social and health system contexts of epidemics are absolutely vast and often receive much less attention than they deserve. This illustrates the kind of real stark realities. This is a picture from a register, a birth register at our central hospital in Harare, Sally Mugabe Hospital, which is the largest public sector hospital. And in one night, this register shows that there were seven stillbirths. Now, that is incredibly high in one night having seven stillbirths. And it was a function of the fact that we did not have obstetricians available, the surgical services and surgical theatres, etc., were all shut down as a result of the fear and the strikes that were associated with the coronavirus pandemic. And I mean, you know, this was heavily covered in the international press, but essentially this is on the bottom left is an article in The Lancet, which basically described the collateral effects of COVID-19 on health programs, but also just showing that this was yet another insult and had brought the health system on its knees. The one other thing that I also want to cover is that, you know, children cover a very big age group, all the way up from zero, all the way up to kind of adulthood. So there are lots of teenagers and adolescents that are included in that age group. And the one very critical service, particularly for young people, was sexual and reproductive health services. And we have been running, so a program that both Sarah and I work on is a cluster randomized trial that provides community-based HIV and sexual reproductive health services as part of a large countrywide cluster randomized trial. So the Intervention provides integrated HIV, SRH, sexual and reproductive health services, including family planning, including menstrual health products, condoms, HIV prevention, HIV testing care and adherence support. And what was very remarkable very early on and very quickly is that there was a huge increase in unprotected sex. There was an increase in unplanned pregnancies. And importantly, the counselors reported increase in the consultations that were due to intimate partner violence. So we also, in the other impact was that because of the reconfiguration of services and the fact that many of the things that we were doing to engage young men, for example, entertainment, for example, music, sport, etc., because young men are such a difficult age group to engage in these sorts of services, we had, again, observed much more reduced engagement and attendance by young men. And there was a real tension between the quality and quantity of services that we were able to offer because we were able to keep only minimal services going. But clearly, the reconfiguration of services meant that, you know, not only did we not engage young men, but also, the, you know, the quality of the services that, that we were able to afford was much reduced. 
So I just want to kind of just give an impact on, again, you know, FAB mentioned that there's been a real sort of focus on the, the direct impact of COVID-2 infections in countries in terms of illness. And clearly children are less impacted in terms of direct disease. They are disproportionately affected in terms of their overall health and well-being. And we've had some discussion around interrupted schooling and the schooling hours lost. But essentially, in the country, where I live from and in the region I work in, there is really limited access to any online or remote resources or homeschooling. So about 80% of children in public sector just stopped schooling completely and did not have any access to additional resources for their education. And importantly, because of economic impacts of the COVID pandemic, what we've seen is a permanent decline in school registration with a permanent discontinuation of schooling because families are unable to afford fees. Essentially, in the context of the economic impact, there is worsening poverty of households on a background of severe economic stress because about 80% are daily wage earners, which has resulted in a rise in both acute and chronic malnutrition, as well as reduced access to healthcare that I've alluded to. Finally, something that also deserves a very important mention in the context of children is mental health. Not only are schools and being ability to have a social environment, incredibly important for people's mental health. And the social isolation that has resulted from lockdowns and restrictions in movement have had severe impact on mental health of children and adolescents. Also, the limited recreational and employment opportunities have also had an impact on mental health. And essentially, you know, there's increasing data to suggest that there has been a rise in substance use as a result of limited opportunities available for young people. So what are the lessons learned for me? I think that beyond the very biomedical focus that we've had on mitigation measures, etc., there's a real need to strengthen health systems. And what I learned, particularly from being on the ward, was it's the little things that matter. Supply chains for drugs, ensuring healthcare workers are protected, that there are services available for healthcare workers, and really looking at the health system as a whole, uh, rather than you know focusing only on biomedical interventions. So the pandemic response should really urgently and immediately focus beyond a narrow response on prevention and management of COVID-19. And for me, the pandemic has really highlighted the critical importance of the social determinants of health. With that, I'd like to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak in this forum. I'm really honoured. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Rashida. What incredibly important and illuminating insights you've brought to us all in today's webinar. We're immensely grateful. And each of our remarkable speakers have highlighted our concentrated orientation of a very specific understanding of COVID risk and impact being kind of clinically defined in terms of clinical impact on children, but even narrower than that, the COVID clinical impact on children rather than their broader health. And there are so many hidden harms and costs for children that you've all illuminated. And we obviously have a problem in many settings in measuring this. And there's a huge risk if we don't count things, then they're rendered as though they don't matter. And so these collateral effects that you've highlighted around mental health, around violence, around education loss, and other forms of health and social and economic losses, we really need to find ways that we can make those count in the same sorts of ways. And our work has 
from my own research with Rashida and others has shown the importance of community engagement in designing interventions with communities, which foster trust, which develop interventions, which are acceptable so that they can be taken up because all of this will inform effectiveness around prevention and reducing harm. And also, I thought it was really interesting the point that Rashida raised just towards the end about the opportunities, but also the risks of our enthusiasm for digital health and our enthusiasm for remote learning, because they work well for some, but they widen the gap of existing inequities for others. So I'm conscious of time, but I just wanted to start the Q&A of the time that we have left by asking each of the panelists just to reflect, if they may, on one key piece of learning that they would advocate needs to be taken forward, must be taken forward in influencing the decision making in the next pandemic or in advance of the next pandemic about how to better protect the broader health and concerns of children. Rashida, would you like to go first? You kind of finished with some of yours, but with any that you'd like to take board, and then maybe we can go to Achana and then Fiona. Great, thanks. I think in terms of the health of children, I, I think we really need to define health as something broader than we do. So it's not the absence of disease. And we've known this. This is the WHO definition of health, but it is about mental health, being ability to school, being able to access food, as well as the absence of disease. And unless we look at health with that definition, we're going to really miss out on the impacts that epidemics and pandemics will have. Thanks. Yeah, for me, it's really about fostering communication. I think one thing that we've learned in COVID is that, you know, you can communicate well if you want, and we really need to stop, really mitigate roadblocks to this. And being able to establish data gathering very rapidly and not kind of working in our silos. Yes, and for me, it's been really the complete neglect of children and adolescents in this epidemic and overriding their rights, essentially. And so it's been incredibly disappointing that all decisions being made about children, by and large, are made by people who have got no background in child health, who don't know how to advocate, don't know the needs of children, and it's been seen through a very narrow lens. And so policy decisions for anything, in fact, anything, need to have children futures and adolescents futures and health and well-being at the table for all policy and political decision making, no matter what it is. And so I think that's been really critical. So having to stand up and constantly fight for these things has been an eye-opening experience for me, who's never been involved in domestic child health policy or research before. I do all global health stuff. And all the global health stuff that I've done and regarding policy, who's around the table is the paediatricians and those who have got content knowledge and an understanding of child health. But now in COVID, who's at the table is not the paediatricians, no one involved in child health. It's other people who've got loud voices or making decisions without thinking about the needs of children. And so I think that's Everybody who's listening here, if you, you know, obviously you're interested in child health, but if you're, you have to keep talking and keep fighting to have children's needs thought about. And the second thing I'd just like to say is about how critical schools are in children's lives. You know, schools are not just about teaching kids to read and write. I mean, they're the social fabric of children. It is their life. You know, it is their life to go and see other children and play with them. That's their life. And so to have that taken away from them is incredible is taking away part of their life. And so, you know, the need and how the intersection between health and education and how important those two things are and need to come together, 
is really critical and needs to continually be pushed as we move forward. Thank you so much. What fantastic, vital, concrete ideas we need to take forward. Phoebe, would you like to... I don't think we can have a webinar on COVID and children without touching on the fairly contentious topic at the moment of vaccinating younger age groups. And I think Rashida has really beautifully brought in some of the health system impacts on young children that this pandemic has had. The number of stillbirths in that night, I know that there's an estimated 10 million babies that are thought to be born, stillborn each year now due to COVID and, and just those health system impacts that you so beautifully summarised. And I just wanted, you know, many of us dialing in here are, are really deep in discussions about whether or not children should be vaccinated. And it's been a fairly topical thing in Australia. And given that the aim of today is to really try and look at COVID from in children from a global point of view, I wondered from your point of view, how you feel that that discussion is being digested in the, the non-Northern countries and, and how you think that we can make sure that all children have protection from both the indirect and direct impacts of COVID-19 going forward. I think this is a very real question. I mean, I'm a member of the National COVID Advisory Panel and we've, to be honest, had this really real question around, should we vaccinate children or not? The simple and real stark reality is that there are just not enough vaccine doses. So if you have to prioritize, you're going to prioritize the groups that are at highest risk, which is those who are adults and those who are those who are more likely to have severe disease. And the stark reality is that we don't in low-income countries have the luxury of sitting at a table and deciding whether to vaccinate, etc. The simple reality is that we can't, even if we wanted to. And so I think the consensus is, yes, we would very much like to vaccinate in Zimbabwe. It's one of the countries that has got relatively high vaccination rates in the continent. So edging towards 25 to 30%, which is much higher than many other parts of the continent, but simply not enough vaccines to vaccinate children. And I think that this brings home the fact about the very stark inequities globally, that the discourse that we are having in the North is around vaccinating children and expanding vaccination. We're having discourse about providing third doses to individuals, which are all showing a very positive impact. But if those are the metrics by which we are going to measure people being vaccinated, then you're pretty much at zero percent because we're not even at 50 percent in many low income countries for a first vaccination dose. So I think if there is one thing that we can take away is that I think we as a public health community need to be absolutely firmly advocating and pushing and looking beyond our own borders in high income countries and really thinking beyond our own backyards, to be honest. Thanks. Thanks, Rashida. I think it's a really important message because we have really been in such a geographically isolated setting here in Australia. And sometimes it's easy to forget that the big discussions we need to consider globally. I'll hand over to Sarah now. I think that was an amazing place to finish, Rashida, and what we should all leave the webinar with clear in our minds that we are currently failing in terms of any form of global equity and we are failing therefore not only in terms of what we should be thinking about for our planet and all being on the same planet but also we're failing in terms of our own risk even if thinking of other people is not persuasive enough an argument so thank you so much
for drawing our attention. Thank you to our absolutely extraordinary three panelists. We've been incredibly honored and lucky to hear from all of you with your extraordinary insights. And we want to also thank you, each of you individually, for the remarkable work that you are doing advocating for children and adolescents, both here in Australia, around the world. We're all deeply grateful and full of admiration for your work. And thank you to all our attendees for listening and for taking part. We really appreciate it. So I will there as we are at time and thank everybody from everywhere that you've been able to join us. And we hope you enjoyed and learned a great deal from listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking Global and Maternal Child Health. This podcast series is presented by the University of Sydney Global Maternal and Child Health Network. The copyright is owned by the University of Sydney. All rights reserved. No reproduction or use of this content without written consent of the University of Sydney.